When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 10 of The Young Railroaders This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs Chapter 10 A Runaway Train Hurry in, Ward, or the lamp will be out. Alex, who had now been night operator at Foothills six months, closed the station door behind him, and laughingly flicked his rain-soaked cap toward the day operator, whom he had just come to relieve. "'Is it raining that hard? You look like a drowned rat for sure,' said Saunders, as he reached for his hat and coat. "'Why didn't you stay at home and phone down? I would have been glad to work for you. Not!' "'Wait until you're out in it, and you'll not laugh,' declared Alex, struggling out of his dripping ulster. "'It is the worst storm this spring.' and wait until you see the fun you're going to have with the wire tonight, and you'll not indulge in an overabundance of smiles. I haven't had a dot from the dispatcher since six o'clock. Had to get clearance for nineteen around by M.Q., and now we've lost them. "'There is someone now,' said Alex, as the instruments began clicking. "'It's somebody west. I see, I think. Yes, Indian Canyon.' said Saunders, pausing as he turned to the door. "'What is he after? He certainly can't make himself heard by X if we can't.' "'X, X, X,' rapidly repeated the sounder, calling Exeter, the dispatching office. "'X, X, X, QK!' Alex and Saunders looked at one another with a start. Several times the operator at Indian Canyon repeated the call, more urgently, then as hurriedly began calling Imken, the next station east of him. "'There must be something wrong,' declared Alex, stepping to the instrument table. Saunders followed him. "'I am, I am, I see. QK, QK,' clicked the sounder. "'I am, I am. I, I, I am.' came the response, and the two operators at Foothills listened closely. "'A wild string of loaded ore-cars just passed here,' buzzed the instruments. "'We're going forty miles an hour. They'll be down there in no time. If there's anything on the main line, get it off. I can't raise X for orders.' The two listening operators exchanged glances of alarm, and anxiously awaited Imkin's response. For a moment the sounder made a succession of inarticulate dots, then ticked excitedly. "'Yes, yes, okay, okay,' and closed. "'What did he mean by that?' asked Saunders, beneath his breath. "'That there was something on the main track there?' "'Perhaps a switch-engine cutting out ore empties. We'll know in a minute.' 
The wire again snapped open and whirred. I got it off, the yard engine. Just in time. Here they come now. Like thunder. There. They're by. Are ten of them. All loaded. Going like an avalanche. Lucky thing the yard engine was. Sharply the operator at Indian Canyon broke in to hurriedly call Terryville, the next station east. "'But the runaways won't pass Terryville, will they?' Alex exclaimed. "'Won't the grades between there and Imkin pull them up?' Saunders shook his head. Ten loaded ore cars travelling at that rate would climb those grades.' "'Then they will be down here, and in twenty or thirty minutes. And there's the accommodation coming from the east,' said Alex rapidly. "'And we can't reach anyone to stop her.' Saunders stared. "'That's so. I'd forgotten her. But what can we do?' he demanded helplessly. Terryville answered, and in strained silence they awaited his report. "'Yes, they're coming. I thought it was thunder. Here they are now.' he added, an instant after. "'They're past.' "'They'll reach us. What shall we do?' gasped Saunders. Alex turned from the table, and as the Indian Canyon operator hastily called Jake's Creek, the last station intervening, began striding up and down the room, thinking rapidly. If they only had more battery, could make the current in the wire stronger— Immediately on the thought came remembrance of the emergency battery he had made the previous year at Watson's siding. He spun about toward the office water-cooler, but only to utter an exclamation of disappointment. The cooler was of tin, of course useless for such a purpose. Hurriedly he began casting about for a substitute. "'Billy, think of something we can make a big battery jar of,' he cried, "'to strengthen the wire.' "'A battery?' But what will we do for bluestone? I used the last yesterday. Alex returned to the table, and threw himself hopelessly into the chair. At the moment the Jake's Creek operator answered his call, and received the message of warning. "'Say,' said Saunders, "'perhaps some of the other fellows on the wire have bluestone and the other stuff, and could make a battery.' Alex uttered a shout. "'That's it!' he cried and springing to the telegraph key, as soon as the wire closed, called Indian Canyon. "'Have you any extra battery material there?' he sent quickly. "'No. Why?' Abruptly Alex cut him off, and called Imkin. He also responded in the negative. But from Terryville came a prompt, "'Yes. Why?' "'Have you one of those big stoneware water-coolers there?' "'Yes, but wh do you know how to make a battery?' No. Well, listen. The instruments had suddenly failed to respond. A minute passed, and another. Five went by, and Alex sank back in the chair, in despair. Undoubtedly the storm had broken the wire somewhere. Everything against us, he declared bitterly, and the runaways will be down here now in fifteen or twenty minutes. What can we do? I can't think of anything but throwing the west switch said Saunders, and loaded, and going at the speed they are, they'll make a mess of everything on the siding. But that's the only way I can think of stopping them. If there was any way a fellow could get aboard the runaways— Alex broke off sharply. Would it not be possible to board the runaway train as he and Jack had boarded the engine on the day of the forest fire? Say, from a hand-car? He started to his feet. 
"'Billy, get me a lantern, quick. "'I'm going for the section, boss, "'and see if we can't board the runaways from the hand-car,' "'he explained as he caught up and began struggling into his coat. "'I did that once at Bixton, boarded an engine.' "'Board it? How?' "'Run ahead of it and let it catch us.' Saunders sprang for the lantern, lit it, and catching it up, Alex was out the door, and off across the tracks through the still-pouring rain for the lights of the section foreman's house. Darting through the gate, he ran about to the kitchen door, and without ceremony flung it open. The foreman was at the table, at his supper. He started to his feet. "'Joe, there's a wild ore train coming down from the canyon,' explained Alex breathlessly and the wire has failed east so we can't clear the line. Couldn't we get the jigger out and board the runaways by letting them catch us?" An instant the section boss stared, then with the promptitude of the old railroader seized his cap, exclaiming, "'Go ahead!' and together they dashed out to the gate and across the tracks in the direction of the tool-house. "'Where did they start from? How many cars?' asked the foreman as they ran. "'Indian Canyon!' ten and all loaded. The section man whistled. They'll be going twenty-five or thirty miles an hour. We'll be taking a big chance. But if we catch them just over the grade beyond the sand pits, I guess we can do it. That will have slackened them. Here we are. As they halted before the section-house door, the boss uttered a cry. I haven't the key! Alex swung the lantern about, and discovered a pile of ties. "'Smash it in,' he suggested, dropping the lantern. One on either side, they caught up a tie, swayed back, and hurled it forward. There was a crash, and the door swung open. Catching up the lantern, they dashed in, threw from the hand-car its collection of tools, placed the light upon it, ran it out, and swung it onto the rails. "'Do you hear them?' asked Alex, as he threw off his coat. The foreman dropped to his knees and placed his ear to the rails, listened a moment, and sprang to his feet. "'Yes, they're coming. Come on!' "'Run her a ways first. They pushed the car ahead, quickly had it on the run, and, springing aboard, seized the handles, and one on either side began pumping up and down with all their strength. As they neared the station, the door opened and Saunders ran to the edge of the platform. "'The wire came okay, and I just heard Z pass thirty-three, he shouted but couldn't make them hear me. He reported the superintendents. They whirled by, and the rest was lost. "'Did you catch it?' shouted Alex above the roar of the car. "'I think he meant,' shouted the foreman as he swung up and down, "'superintendent's car, attached to the accommodation. Heard he was coming. Makes it bad. We need every minute QQQ and old Jerry. The engineer—' will be breaking his neck to bring her through on time. Do you hear runaways yet? No. On they rushed through the darkness, bobbing up and down like jumping jacks, the little car rumbling and screeching and bounding forward like a live thing. The terrific and unaccustomed strain began to tell on Alex. Perspiration broke out on his forehead, his muscles began to burn, and his breath to shorten. "'How much farther? To the grade?' he panted. "'Here it is now. Six hundred yards to the top.' As they felt the resistance of the incline, Alex began to weaken and gasp for breath. 
Grimly, however, he clenched his teeth and fought on, and at last the section man suddenly ceased working and announced, "'Here we are. Let up!' With a gasp of relief, Alex dropped to a sitting position on the side of the car. "'There it comes,' said the foreman a moment after, and listening Alex heard a sound as of distant thunder. "'How long before they'll be here?' Five minutes, perhaps. And now—' said the section boss. Just how are we going to work this thing? Well, when we boarded the engine at Bixton, explained Alex, getting his breath, we simply waited at the head of a grade until it was within about two hundred yards of us, then lit out just as hard as we could go, and as she bumped us, we jumped. All right, we'll do the same. As the foreman spoke, the rain, which had decreased to a drizzle, entirely ceased, and a moment after the moon appeared. He and Alex at once turned toward the station. Just beyond was a long, black, snake-like object shooting along the rails toward them. The runaway! On it swept over the glistening irons, the rumble quickly increasing to a roar. With an echoing crash it flashed by the station, and on. Nearer it came, the cars leaping and writhing, roaring, pounding, screeching. "'Ready?' warned the foreman, springing to the ground behind the handcar. Alex joined him, and gazing over their shoulder, watching, they braced themselves for the shove. The runaways reached the incline, and swept on upward. Anxiously the two watched as they waited. Would the incline check them? "'I don't see that they're slowing,' Alex said, somewhat nervously. It won't tell until they're halfway up the grade," declared the section man. But get ready. We can't wait to see. Go! he cried. Running the car forward, they leaped aboard, and again were pumping with all their might. For a few moments the roar behind them seemed to decrease. Then suddenly it broke on them afresh, and the head of the train swept over the rise. Now pull yourself together for an extra spurt when I give the word shouted the foreman, who manned the forward handles and faced the rear. "'Then turn about and get ready to jump!' Roaring, screaming, clanking, the runaways thundered down upon them. "'Hit it up!' cried the section man. With every muscle tense they whirled the handles up and down like human engines. "'Let go! Turn about!' Alex sprang back from the flying handles and faced about. The foreman edged by them and joined him. Nearer! towering over them, rushed the leading oar-car. "'Be sure and jump high and grab hard!' shouted the foreman. "'Ready? Jump!' With a bound they went into the air, and the great car flung itself at them. Both reached the top of the end-board with their outstretched hands, and gripped tenaciously. As they swung against it, it seemed the car would shake them off. But, clinging desperately, they got their feet on the brake-beam, and in another moment had tumbled headlong within. Alex sank down on the rough oar in a heap, gasping. The seasoned section man, however, was on his feet and at the nearby handbrake in a twinkle. Tightening it, he scrambled back over the bounding car to the next. Ten minutes later, screeching and groaning as though in protest, the runaways came to a final stop. Another ten minutes and the engineer of the accommodation suddenly threw on his air as he rounded a curve to discover a lantern 
swinging across the rails ahead of him. "'Hello there, Jerry. Say, you're not good enough for a passenger run,' said the section foreman humorously, as he approached the astonished engineer. "'We're going to put you back pushing oar-cars. There's a string here just ahead of you.' When he had explained, the engineer stepped down from his cab to grasp Alex's hand. "'Oh, it was more the foreman than I,' Alex declared. "'I couldn't have worked it alone.' A moment later the superintendent appeared. "'Why, let me see!' he exclaimed on seeing Alex. "'Are you not the lad I helped fix up an emergency battery at Watson's siding last spring? And who has been responsible for two or three other similar clever affairs?' "'My boy, young as you are, my name's not Cameron if I don't see that you have a try-out at the division office before the month is out,' he announced decisively. "'We need men there with a head like yours.'" End of chapter Chapter 11 of The Young Railroaders This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs Chapter 11 The Haunted Station True to the division superintendent's promise, a month following the incident of the runaway ore train, Alex was transferred to the dispatching office at Exeter. It was the superintendent himself who on the evening of his arrival presented him for duty to the chief night dispatcher and a few minutes later, having been initiated into the mysteries of directing and recording the movements of trains, Alex was shown to his wire. "'It is a short line, only as far as the Midway Freight Junction,' the chief explained. "'But if you make good here, you will soon be given something bigger. And, by the way, take your time in sending to the operator at the junction,' he added. "'He's a rather poor receiver.' but was the only man we could get to go there on account of that so-called haunting business. "'Oh, has the ghost appeared there again?' inquired Alex with interest, for the haunting of the Midway Junction station had been a subject of much discussion on the mainline wire a few weeks back. "'Yes, two nights ago. And like the four men there before him, the night man left next morning. It is a strange affair.' but I think the man there now will stick." At midnight Alex called Midway Junction, and sent the order starting north, the last freight for the night. Fifteen minutes later the operator at M.J. suddenly called and clicked, "'That thing is here again. It's walking up and down the platform just outside.' "'There it is now,' he said excitedly. "'And twice I've jumped out, and the moment I opened the door it was gone.' There it is again. Now it's on the roof, he announced a few moments after, rolling something down, just like the other chap said. Gee, I'm no coward, but this thing is getting my nerve. Though himself now considerably excited, Alex sought to reassure the M.J. man. But you know there must be some simple explanation to it, he said. No one really believes in ghosts these days. Just don't allow yourself to be frightened. Yes, I know, ticked the sounder. That's what I told myself before I came. It seems vastly different, though, right here on the spot, and all by yourself, 
and it dark as pitch outside. If there was only someone else. The wire abruptly closed. A moment remained so, then suddenly opened, and in signals so excitedly made that Alex could only guess at some of them, he read, "'Did you hear that? Did you get that?' "'Hear what? The wire was closed to me.' "'Closed? G good heavens! Will, will he... why?' By an effort the frightened operator at the other end of the wire pulled himself together, and sent more plainly, "'When I stopped that time, someone broke in here and said, "'Ha, ha! Hi, hi! Look behind! Look b—' Again the wire closed, again opened. "'There it was again!' Alex called the chief. "'Mr. Allen, that ghost, or whatever it is—' Once more the instruments broke out in an almost inarticulate whir, and with difficulty together they picked out the words. "'Sounds in the next room. Yelling and groaning just other side partition. Whispering at me through a knot-hole. An eye looking at me. Stand it any longer. Right now. G.B. Goodbye. Grasping the key, the chief sent quickly, "'Look here. Wait a moment. You there?' There was no response. Again he called, and gave it up. "'No use. He's off like the rest of them. Well, I'm not sure I blame him. There must be something wrong. But it beats me.' As he was about to move away, the chief turned back and handed Alex a letter. "'I overlooked giving it to you when you came in,' he explained." from Jack Orr," said Alex, with pleasure. A moment later he uttered a second exclamation, again read a paragraph, and with a delighted, THE VERY THING, hastened after the chief. Mr. Allen, this letter is from a friend of mine, a first-class commercial operator, who wants to get into railroad telegraphing, and who would be just the man to send to M.J. He's a regular amateur detective, and has all kinds of pluck. Alex went on, and in a few words recounted Jack's clearing up of the cash-box mystery at Hammerton, the part he played in the breaking up of the band of black-handers, and his resourcefulness when the wires were cut at Oakton. The chief smiled and reached for a message-blank. "'Thank you, Ward,' he said. "'That's the man we want, exactly. How soon can he come?' "'He says he could take a place with us right away, sir.' "'Good.' We'll have him here, if possible, to-morrow evening," decided the chief, writing. Needless to say, Jack was delighted when early the following morning at Hammerton he received the telegraphed appointment to the station at Midway. At once resigning at the Hammerton commercial office, he hurried home, by noon was on the train, and arrived at Midway Junction at seven o'clock. Entering the telegraph room, he called Exeter. "'Well, here I am, Al.' he ticked, when Alex himself responded. "'And I'm ever so much obliged to you, old boy, for getting me the position.' "'Don't mention it. And anyway,' responded Alex, "'you had better save your thanks until you learn just what you are up against there. I didn't have time to write, but the former man left last night, simply on the run.' And continuing, Alex explained. "'So you see, you were called in as a sort of expert.' Hi, laughed Jack. Well, I'll do the best I can. 
but probably the ghost won't show up again now for a month or so? On the contrary, it is more likely to return soon, clicked Alex. That has been the way every time so far, three or four appearances in succession. So you had better prepare for business at once. Alex's prediction was realized two nights later. A few minutes after the last freight had gone north, and Jack had been left entirely alone in the big station, he heard light footfalls outside on the platform. Going to the window, he peered out into the darkness, and seeing nothing, turned to the door. As he opened it, the footsteps ceased. Surprised, Jack returned and secured a lantern, and passed out and down the long platform. From end to end, it was deserted and silent. He returned to the office. Scarcely had he closed the door when again came the sound of footsteps. Jack paused and listened. They were light and quick, like those of a woman, up and down, up and down, now pausing a moment, now briskly resuming, as though the walker was anxiously waiting for someone. On tiptoe Jack went to the door, suddenly flew it open and flashed the lantern. As quickly the steps had ceased, not a moving object was to be seen. Immensely puzzled, Jack withdrew, and stepped to the instrument table. As he reached toward the telegraph key, from almost directly overhead, broke out a thundering rumble, as of a heavy wooden ball bounding down the roof. Catching up the lantern, he once more rushed forth. Immediately, as before, all was silence. Nervous at last, in spite of himself, Jack hesitated, then resolutely set forth on a complete round of the station and freight shed, throwing the lantern life upon the roof, through the dusty windows, and into every nook and corner. Nowhere was there a sign of life. He returned. The moment he closed the office door, the rumble broke out afresh. Jack sprang to the instruments, called Exeter, and sent rapidly, "'Al, that ghost is here, and in spite of me is beginning to get on my—' The line opened, then sharply clicked. "'Look behind! Look behind!' With a cry, Jack was on his feet, and had started for the door. Halfway he pulled up, with a determined effort controlled his panic, and returned to the key. "'I suppose you didn't hear that, Al?' he asked. "'Not a letter.' "'Well, good gracious, what—oh!' A cold chill shot up Jack's back. The cause was a low, long-drawn moan apparently from just the other side of the wooden partition, in the freight-room. Again it came, then suddenly ceased, to give place to a low, tense whispering immediately behind him. Jack sprang about and leaped to his feet. Within touch of him was a large knot-hole. And was there not an eye at it? Peering at him? He sprang toward it. No, nothing. The whispering, too, had ceased. Thoroughly shaken, Jack again turned for his hat, and again faltered between the chair and the door. "'You there, Jack?' clicked Alex. "'Hang on, old boy. Keep your nerve.' Clenching his teeth and gripping his hands, Jack regained control of himself and returned to the instruments. "'Thanks, Al,' he sent. "'I was about all in, sure enough. But I am okay again now, and going to stick it out unless they, or it, or whatever it is, lugs me off bodily. "'That's the talk,' said Alex encouragingly. "'I knew you'd make good. 
Just keep on telling yourself there must be some natural explanation somehow, and you'll win out okay. Yes, that's my cue, a natural explanation somehow, Jack repeated to himself the following afternoon, as he left the big railroad boarding-house, a half-mile from the station, and set out for a walk to think things over. And I believe the starting point is that talk on the wire. That certainly is the work of an operator. Now, why is it heard only at this office? Say, could it be on the loop? A cut-off arrangement on the station loop? I'll go down and look into that right now, declared Jack, and turning about, headed for the station. The platforms and the big freight shed were alive with the bustle of the freight handlers, loading and unloading cars, trundling boxes and bales from one part of the platform to another, and in and out of the big shed, and unnoticed Jack discovered where the wires from the pole passed in under the roof. Entering the shed, he proceeded carefully to follow their course along the beams toward the telegraph room. He had almost reached the partition, and was beginning to think his conclusion perhaps too hastily drawn, when a few feet from the wall, where the light from an opposite window struck the roof, he caught two unmistakable gleams of copper. With a suppressed cry he made his way directly beneath, and at once saw that the insulation of both wires of the loop had been cut through. "'Right! I was right!' exclaimed Jack jubilantly beneath his breath. "'And I can see in a minute how it's done. Whoever it is simply gets up there somehow, and ticks one wire against the other. And of course the instrument's inside click as they are alternately cut off and cut on, and the rest of the line is not affected. Good. I'm on the trail. But what can be the object of it all?' Jack turned to look about him, and, as in answer, the lettering of a nearby box caught his eye. Valuable! Handle with care! Freight-stealing! Could that be it? On reporting for duty that evening, Jack called Alex on the wire, and asked if any freight had recently been reported missing from the Midway depot. No, but I understand some valuable stuff has been mysteriously disappearing at Claxton and Eastfield was the reply. Jack was considerably disappointed, but before giving up this line of investigation he determined to study the freight records of the station, to discover whether any freight for the two places mentioned by Alex had passed through Midway. A few minutes' search produced the record of a valuable shipment of silk to Claxton. A moment later he found another. When presently he found still others, and several to Eastfield, he hurried back to the wire, and, calling Alex, asked the nature of the goods lost track of at those stations, and breathlessly awaited the reply. "'I'll ask,' said Alex. "'Silverware and silk. Mostly silk.' Jack uttered a shout. "'Hurrah, Alex!' he whirred. "'I'm on the track of our friend the Ghost. But keep mum.' And now the question is, he told himself, leaning back in his chair, how do they work it? The answer to the query came very unexpectedly as Jack left the station office at daybreak. Strolling down the front platform, where several men already were at work unloading a car, he inadvertently got in the way of a loaded truck. On the sudden cry of the truckman he sprang aside, tripped, and fell headlong against a large square packing case. 
As he did so, he distinctly heard from within a sharp, Oh! Only with difficulty did Jack avoid crying out, and scrambling to his feet hastened away, that his discovery might not be suspected by the man in the box. The whole mystery was now clear. The ghost was a freight thief, who had himself shipped in a box to some point which would necessitate his being transferred and held overnight at the freight junction. He played ghost either to frighten the operator away, or to lead to the belief that any noises overheard were caused by spirits, then overhauled the valuable freight in the shed, took what he wanted with him into his own box, which supposedly he could open and close from the inside, and was shipped away with it the following morning. The rifled packages, carefully resealed, also went on to their several destinations, and the blame of the theft was laid elsewhere. Jack was not long in deciding upon his next move. Coming down from the boarding-house before the sheds had been closed that afternoon, he noted where the box containing the unsuspected human freight had been placed, and selecting a window at the far end of the shed, seized a favourable moment to quietly loosen its catch. It was near midnight, and Jack was once more the sole guardian of the station when he took the next step, and despite a certain nervousness, now that the exciting moment was at hand, he found considerable amusement in carrying it out. It was nothing less than making up a dummy imitation of himself asleep on a cot in a corner of the telegraph room, as a precaution against the ghost peering within to learn the effect of his haunting. In making the dummy, Jack used a brown fur cap for the head, a glimpse of which under an old hat looked remarkably like his own brown head. A collection of old overalls and record-books carefully arranged formed the body, and his own shoes the feet. When over the hole he threw his overcoat, the deception was complete. Chuckling at the subterfuge, Jack lost no time in slipping forth for the next step in his programme. Tiptoeing down the platform to the window whose latch he had loosened, he softly raised it, listened, and climbing through, dropped noiselessly to the floor. Feeling his way in the darkness amid the bales and boxes, he reached a nook behind a piano-case he had previously noted, and settling down, prepared to await the appearance of the spectre. The wait was not long. Scarcely had he made himself comfortable when from the direction of the big packing-case came the muffled sound of a screwdriver. Soon there followed a noise as of a board being softly shoved aside, then a step on the floor. Simultaneously there was the crackle of a match, and peering forth Jack momentarily made out a thin, clean-shaven face bending over a dark lantern. But quickly he drew back with a start of fright, as the man turned and came directly toward him. A few feet away, however, the intruder halted, and again peering cautiously forth Jack discovered the lantern, closely muffled, on the floor, and beside it the dim figure of the man working with his hands at a plank. As Jack watched, wondering, the plank came up. Laying it aside carefully, the stranger stepped down into the opening, recovered the lantern, and disappeared. "'Now what under the sun is he up to?' exclaimed Jack to himself. From the platform outside came the sound of footsteps. Jack started, listened a moment, and uttered a low cry of triumph. At last he understood. 
Well, what a dolt I am! He laughed. Why didn't I think of that? The fellow is simply out beneath the platform, making sounds against the underside of the planking, probably with a stick. Jack was still chuckling delightedly over this simple explanation of the mysterious walking, when the noise ceased, and the light of the lantern returned. On reappearing, the unknown dragged after him a long pole. As Jack watched, puzzling over its use, the spectre, hoisted the pole to his shoulder, cautiously picked his way amid the freight to the telegraph-room partition, and mounted a large box. And then, while Jack fairly shook with internal laughter, he laboriously raised the pole and began bumping and scraping it up and down the underside of the roof. "'Natural explanations,' bubbled Jack through his handkerchief, "'and imagine anyone being frightened at it, beating it for home!' When the man on the box had concluded his second demonstration, and descended, Jack had caused to thank himself for his precaution in leaving the dummy. Evidently puzzled at the silence in the operating-room, the man placed his eye to the knot-hole in the partition, and peered through. Muttering something in surprise, he listened closely, and looked again, while Jack looked on, shaking, and holding his mouth. Apparently at last satisfied that the operator within was asleep at his post, the intruder turned about and threw a shaft of light up towards the wires of the loop. Expectantly Jack waited. Had he also guessed right here? But to his disappointment, after a brief debate with himself, the ghost muttered, "'If he's asleep, what's the use?' And catching up the pole, he returned it to the hole in the floor and replaced the plank. Then, in final confirmation of Jack's deductions, the intruder turned his attention to the packages of merchandise about him, speedily selected a box, and proceeded to open it. For several hours the unsuspecting freight-robber worked, frequently returning to the crack in the partition to assure himself that the negligent operator there was still in the land of dreams, each time to Jack's great amusement. And finally, having secured all the booty he could handle, and having carefully closed the cases from which it had been taken, he moved the plunder into his own box, crept in after, again came the squeak of the screwdriver, and the robbery was complete. At once Jack crept from his place of concealment, and back to the window, dropped out, and was off on the run for the boarding-house, and twenty minutes after he returned with the freight-house foreman and several freight-hands, armed, and with lanterns. Entering by the door, he led them directly to the robber's box. Sharply the foreman kicked at it, and called, "'Hello, in there! Your little game is up, my friend. Come out!' There was no response, and he drew his revolver. "'Open up quick, or I'll shoot!' "'Oh, all right, all right!' cried a muffled voice hurriedly. The next moment the Midway Junction ghost stepped grimly from his box and stood before them. "'But look here, youngster,' ticked the chief dispatcher, who some minutes later followed Alex Ward on the wire, in congratulating Jack on the solution of the mystery. "'Don't you talk too much about this business, or first thing you know they'll be taking you from the telegraph force and adding you to the detective department. We want you ourselves.' <laughs> "'No fear,' laughed Jack. "'I might try a matter like this once in a while, but I want to work up as an operator, not a detective.' 
You'll work up okay, declared the chief. End of chapter. Chapter 12 of The Young Railroaders This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs Chapter 12 In a Bad Fix and Out Good evening, young man. With a start, Jack turned toward the quietly opened door of the telegraph room to discover a short, dark, heavily bearded man, over whose eyes was pulled a soft gray hat. "'I suppose you don't have many visitors at the station at this time of night?' said the stranger, entering. "'No, but you are quite welcome. Have a chair,' responded Jack courteously. To the young operator's surprise, the stranger drew the chair immediately before him, and, seating himself, leaned forward secretively. "'My name is Watts,' he began in a low voice, "'and I've come on business. For you are the lad who worked out that ghost mystery here, and caused the capture of the freight robber, aren't you?' "'Yes,' confirmed Jack, in further wonder. "'I thought so. I heard as much.' I know a clever lad when I see one, and that was one of the cleverest bits of detective work I ever heard of," declared Mr. Watts, with a winning smile. If the railroad detectives had done their work as well, the whole freight-stealing gang would have been landed. As it was, none of the rest were caught, were they? Instead of being pleased, the man's flattery and ingratiating manner had ruffled Jack, and briefly he answered, "'No, sir.' No, I knew that already. I was one of them myself. At this startling statement, Jack stared. I beg your pardon, sir, he exclaimed. I was a member of that gang myself, repeated Jack's strange caller, again smiling broadly. Don't you think I looked the part? So saying, he pushed his hat back from his face. Jack had no doubt of it. The small dark eyes were repellent with low cunning and greed. Instinctively he half turned to cast a glance toward the door. At once the smile disappeared, and the self-confessed lawbreaker threw open his coat and significantly tapped the butt of a revolver. "'No, you just sit still and listen,' he ordered sharply, but immediately again smiling added, "'Though there needn't be anything of this kind between two who are going to be good friends.' Listen. What I called for was this. We want another man in the gang in place of Joe Corey. That is the man you caught. And we decided to invite you. Jack fairly caught his breath. Why, you must be joking or... or crazy, eh? <laughs> Not quite. I was never more serious in my life. Listen. The speaker leaned forward earnestly. After your spoiling our little ghost game here, the railroad people would never look for us starting in again at the same place. Never in the world, would they? And likewise, after your causing the capture of Corey, they would never in the world suspect you of working with us. Do you see the point? And all you would have to do would be to keep your ears closed and not hear any noises out in the freight room at night. 
and for doing that, concluded the lawbreaker, we will give you a regular salary of twenty-five dollars a month. We'll send it by mail, or bank it for you at any bank you name, and no one will know where it comes from. What do you say? Jack drew back indignantly. Most certainly not, he began. Then suddenly he hesitated. As the freight robber had said, the authorities had been unable to obtain a single clue to the whereabouts or identity of the remainder of the freight-stealing gang. Should he accept the man's offer, came the thought, undoubtedly, sooner or later, he would be able to bring about the capture of every one of them. Immediately following, however, there recurred to Jack one of his mother's warnings, that even the appearance of evil is dangerous, always, as well as wrong. But this would be quite different, Jack argued to himself, to cause the capture of criminals. And what possible danger could there be in it? No one would believe for an instant that I would go into such a thing seriously, he told himself. All right, Mr. Watts, he said aloud. I'll do it. Good. It's a go. The freight-stealer spoke with satisfaction, and, rising, grasped Jack's hand. "'I told you I knew a clever boy when I saw one, and that means a wise one. Well, that's all there is to it, excepting the money matter. Where will we send that? Here?' Jack responded with an effort. "'Yes, you may as well send it to me here.' "'All right. Look for it at the end of the month.' said Watts, proceeding to the door. "'Remember, you are dumb, that's all. Good night.' Jack's sense of honour was not long in convincing him that he had made a mistake in entering into such a bargain, even with a lawbreaker. A dozen times during the days that followed he would have given anything to have been able to wipe out the agreement. Unhappily, this dissatisfaction with himself was to prove but a minor result of the misstep. Shortly after he had relieved the day operator at the station a week later, he was surprised by the appearance of one of the road detectives, and with him a stranger. "'Good evening, Orr,' said the detective in a peculiar tone. "'Let me make you acquainted with Sheriff Bates.' Jack started and glanced from one to the other. "'Is there anything wrong?' he asked. "'Very slightly.' Your little game is up, that's all. Your older partner has given the thing away, and we have just found the watch in your room at the boarding-house," announced the detective. "'Given the thing away? The watch? Why, what do you mean?' exclaimed Jack in alarm. "'Oh, come! Watts has squealed, and we found the watch hidden, just as he said, in the mattress of your bed up at the house.' In a flash Jack saw it all. Watts's offer had been a trap. A mere trap to get him into trouble, probably in revenge. He sprang to his feet. "'It's not true. It's false. Whatever it is, it's false. I did see Watts, and he asked me to go in with them, but I only agreed so as to learn who they were, so we could capture them.' To his utter dismay the two officers only laughed dryly. "'No, no, that's quite too thin,' declared the detective. "'Read this.' Blankly, Jack took the letter and read, "'Chief Detective, Middle Western Railroad. Dear Sir, 
the young night operator at Midway Junction has joined the freight-stealing gang that Corey belonged to, and if you will look under the mattress in his room at the railroad boarding-house, you will find a watch and chain of the lot we stole at Claxton two weeks ago. I gave it to him last Friday night. I came to Midway by the Eastfield freight, and when I saw another operator in the station office, I started up towards the boarding-house, and met Orr coming down. I mentioned this to show my story is all straight. I heard he was going to give us away as soon as he had got enough loot himself, and claim he only went in with us to get us. That is why I am showing him up. Yours truly, W. Watts. And the day operator had worked for him that Friday evening, while he was at the landlady daughter's birthday party, and he had come down to the station at about the time the Eastfield night freight came in. Jack sank back in the chair, completely crushed. "'Change your mind, eh?' remarked the sheriff sarcastically. Jack shook his head, but said nothing. What could he say? "'If it's as false as you claim, how do you explain our finding the watch in your room?' demanded the detective. "'I don't know. Someone must have put it there.' "'Very likely.' It wouldn't have crept upstairs and got under the bed itself. And I suppose you will deny also that you saw Watts on the night of the party, despite the fact that he could not otherwise have known the unusual hour you came down to the station that night, eh? I never saw him after the night he called here, affirmed Jack earnestly, but hopelessly. Well, you will have to prove it, declared the sheriff and to Jack's unspeakable horror he was informed he must be taken into custody. Needless to say, the news of Jack's arrest, and of his early trial at Eastfield, the county seat, came as a tremendous shock to Alex at Exeter. Of course he thoroughly disbelieved in Jack's guilt, despite the net of circumstantial evidence which, according to the newspapers, had been woven about his friend. And morning and afternoon he read and re-read the papers, in the hope of something more favourable to Jack developing. It was through this close reading that Alex finally came upon the discovery that was to draw him into the case himself, and to have so important a bearing on the outcome of the trial. Early in the evening, preceding the date set for the hearing, Alex, before starting work on his wire, was studying the paper, as usual. For the second time he was reading the letter from the man Watts that had had such serious results for Jack. Suddenly, as he read, Alex started, again read a portion of the letter, a moment thought deeply, and with a cry sprang to his feet and hastened to the chief dispatcher's desk. "'Mr. Allen,' he said excitedly, "'in this letter Watts says he reached Midway Junction that Friday night by the Eastfield Freight, and that he met and gave Jack Orr the watch after that.' Now I remember distinctly that it was Jack reported the arrival of the Eastfield freight that night. She was twenty minutes late, and I recall asking if she was in sight yet, and his reply that she had just whistled. That means Jack was back at the station before the time at which Watts claims he met him. "'Ward, why in the world didn't you think of this before?' the chief exclaimed. "'It's the most important piece of evidence your friend could have.' Call Eastfield right away on the long distance, and get Orr's lawyer, and tell him." Alex hastily did so, 
and a few minutes after he heard the lawyer's voice from the distant town, and quickly told his story. To his surprise the lawyer for a moment remained silent, then said slowly, "'Of course I would like to believe that. In fact, it would make an invaluable piece of evidence, practically conclusive. But really now, how could you be sure it was or you heard? What possible difference can there be between the ticks made over a telegraph wire by one distant operator and those made by another? "'Why, all the difference in the world sometimes, sir,' declared Jack. "'Any operator would tell you that. I would recognize Jack Orr's sending anywhere I heard it.' But the lawyer at the other end was still incredulous. "'Well,' he said at last, "'if the jury was made up of telegraph operators, perhaps your claim might go. As it is, however—' "'Say, I have it,' cried Alex. Let me give a demonstration right there in court of my ability to identify the sending of as many operators as we can get together, including Jack Orr. Could you arrange that?" The lawyer was interested at last. "'But could you really do it? Are you really that sure?' "'I am absolutely positive,' declared Alex. "'Then you come right ahead.' was the decisive response. Come down here by the first train in the morning, and bring two or three other operators, and the necessary instruments. And if you can prove what you claim, I'll guarantee that your friend is clear." "'Hurrah! Then he is clear!' cried Alex joyously. Accompanied by three other operators from the Exeter office, and with a set of telegraph instruments and a convenient dry battery, Alex reached the courtroom at Eastfield at ten o'clock the following morning. The trial, which had attracted a crowd that packed the building to its capacity, already had neared its conclusion. Jack's demeanor, and that of his father, who was beside him, quickly informed Alex that matters were looking serious for his chum. Confidently he waited, however, and at last the court clerk arose and called his name. The preliminary questions were passed, and Jack's attorney at once proceeded. "'Now, Alex,' he said, "'this letter here, which has been put in evidence, declares that the writer, Watts, went to Midway Junction by the Eastfield Freight on the Friday night in question, and that he then met the defendant coming down to the station from his boarding-house, and gave him the watch. Have you anything to say to this?' "'Yes, sir. Jack Orr was at the telegraph instruments in the Midway Junction station several minutes before the Eastfield freight reached there that night. It was he who reported her coming over the wire to me at Exeter.' The lawyer for the prosecution looked up with surprise, then smiled in amusement, while Jack and his father started, and exchanged glances of new hope. "'You are positive it was the defendant you heard over the wire?' asked Mr. Brown. "'Positive, sir.' "'If necessary, could you give a demonstration here in court of your ability to identify the defendant's transmitting on a telegraph instrument?' "'Yes, sir, I could.' When the lawyer for the other side arose to cross-examine Alex, he smiled somewhat derisively. <laughs> 
"'You are a friend of the defendant, are you not?' he asked significantly. "'Yes, sir, and so know his sending over the wire unusually well,' responded Alex, cleverly turning the point of the question. The lawyer shrugged his shoulders, and put the next question with sarcasm. "'And now, do you mean to stand there, and tell this court that the clicks, the purely mechanical clicks, made over a telegraph wire by an operator miles away, will sound different to the clicks made by any other operator. I do, said Alex quietly, and I am ready to demonstrate it. Oh, you are, are you? And how, pray? Three other operators from the Exeter office are in the courtroom, with a set of instruments and a battery. Let them place the instruments on the table down there, blindfold me, then have them and Jack Orr by turns write something on the key. I'll identify every one of them before he sends a half-dozen words." A wave of surprise, then smiles of incredulity, passed over the crowded room. "'Very well,' agreed the lawyer readily. "'Set up the instruments.' The three Exeter operators came forward, and the prosecutor, producing a handkerchief, himself stepped into the witness-box, and proceeded to bind Alex's eyes. That done, to make doubly sure, he turned Alex face to the wall. When the lawyer returned to the counsel table, the proceedings were momentarily interrupted by a whispered consultation with his assistant, at the end of which, while the spectators wondered, the latter hastened from the room. Curiosity as to the junior counsel's mission was quickly forgotten, however, as the prosecutor then called Jack Orr to the table beside the telegraph instruments, and stood Jack and the three Exeter operators in a row before him. Now, said he in a low voice, each of you, as I touch you, step quietly to the key and send these words. Do you know who this is? A moment the lawyer paused, while spectators, judge, and jury waited in breathless silence, then reaching out, he lightly touched one of the Exeter men. "'Do you know who this is?' clicked the sounder. All eyes turned toward Alex. Without a moment's hesitation, he answered, "'Johnson!' The operator nodded, and a flutter passed over the courtroom. "'Huh! A guess!' declared the prosecutor audibly and still smiling confidently, he touched another of the Exeter operators. The instruments repeated the question. "'Bradley!' said Alex promptly. The flutter of surprise was repeated. Quickly the prosecutor made as though to touch the third Exeter man, then abruptly again touched Bradley. "'Bradley again!' said Alex. A ripple like applause swept over the crowded room. With tightening lips, the prosecutor turned again toward the third Exeter operator. At the moment the door opened, and he paused as his assistant reappeared, with him, two young ladies. The newcomers were operators from the local commercial telegraph office. At once Jack's lawyer, recognizing the prosecution's purpose, was on his feet in protest. For of course the young women were utter strangers to the blindfolded boy and the witness-stand. The judge promptly motioned him down, however, and with a smile of anticipated triumph the prosecutor greeted the two local operators, and whispering his instructions to one of them, led her to the telegraph key. 
in a silence that was painful, the sounder once more rattled out its inquiry. "'Do you know who this is?' Alex started, hesitated, made as though to speak, again paused, then suddenly cried, "'That's a stranger, and it's awfully like the light, jumpy sending of a girl!' A spontaneous cheer broke from the excited spectators. "'Silence! Silence!' shouted the judge. It was not necessary to repeat the order, for the disconcerted prosecutor, whirling about, had grasped Jack Orr by the arm, and thrust him toward the key. The final test had come. Jack himself realized the significance of the moment, and for an instant hesitated, trembling. Then determinedly gripping himself, he reached forward, grasped the key, and sent, "'Do you know? Orr! Orr! That's he!' cried Alex. With a shout the entire courtroom was on its feet, women waving their handkerchiefs and men cheering wildly again and again. And equally disregarding the etiquette of the court, Alex tore the handkerchief from his eyes, and leaping down beside Jack, fell to shaking his hand as though he would never let go, while Jack vainly sought to express himself and to keep back the tears that came to his eyes. Ten minutes later, with order restored, Jack was formally declared not guilty, and with Alex on one side and his father on the other, left the room free and vindicated. "'Well, good-bye, my lad,' said Mr. Orr, as he and Alex that evening dropped Jack off their returning train at Midway Junction. "'And I suppose it is unnecessary to warn you against understandings with such men as Watts in the future, no matter for what purpose.' "'Hardly, Dad,' responded Jack earnestly. "'No more agreements of any kind for me, unless they are on the levelest kind of level, no matter who they are with, or for what purpose.'" End of chapter Chapter 13, Part 1 of The Young Railroaders this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs Chapter 13, Part 1 Professor Click, Mine Reader Some months previously Alex and Jack had arranged to take their two weeks' vacation at the same time, and to spend one week at Haddowville, Jack's home, and the other at Bixton. The long-looked-for Monday had at length arrived, early that morning Jack had joined Alex at Exeter, and the two boys, aboard the Eastern Mail, were now well on their way to Haddowville. For some minutes Alex's part in the animated conversation of the two chums had waned. Presently, plucking Jack's sleeve, he quietly directed his companion's attention to the double seat across the aisle of the car. "'Jack, watch that soldier's fingers,' he said in a low voice. What's the matter with him?" The soldier in question, in the uniform of an infantry regular, sat facing them, beside a stout elderly gentleman. Opposite the first soldier was a second, in a similar uniform, and sharing the seat with the latter, and facing the old gentleman, was a decidedly pretty young girl. It was the first soldier's left hand, however, which attracted the boy's particular attention. Resting in his lap, and partly concealed by a newspaper, the hand was so doubled that the thumb stood upright. 
and this latter member was bobbing and wagging up and down, now slowly, now quickly, in most curious fashion. "'Perhaps it's St. Vitus's dance,' ventured Jack. "'But that affects the whole body, or at least the whole limb, doesn't it?' Jack, who sat next the window, leaned slightly forward. "'The other soldier is watching him,' he said. "'Maybe the fellow with the wiggling thumb is out of his mind, and this one is taking him somewhere. He's watching his hand.' Silently the boys continued to regard the curious proceeding. Suddenly the thumb became quiet, there was the rattle of a paper in the hands of the second soldier, and in turn his thumb became affected with the wagging. In a moment the boys understood. The two soldiers were army signalers, and were carrying on a silent conversation, using their thumbs as they would a flag. Jack and Alex looked at one another and laughed softly. "'We're bright, hey?' Alex remarked. "'Let us watch when the other starts again. We can't see this chap's hand well enough. And see if we can read it,' suggested Jack. "'That one flag signal system is based on the telegraph dot and dash code, you know. And it's not likely they're speaking of anything private, only amusing themselves.' The paper opposite again covered the first soldier's hand, and observing closely, after a few minutes the boys were able to interpret the strokes of the wagging thumb with ease. They corresponded precisely to the strokes of a telegraph sounder, and of course were very much slower. "'Not much. I saw her first. they read. "'You have three girls at K now. Get out. I'll tell Maggie O'Rourke, and she'll pick your eyes out. No, sir, you can have the two old maids just back of you, and the fat party with the red hair. That's your taste, anyway. If you spoke, she'd freeze you so you'd never thaw out." The two boys exchanged glances and chuckled in amusement. "'Say, look at the gaudy nose on that old chap across the aisle,' went on the wagging thumb. "'Talk about danger signals. They ought to hire him to sit on the cowcatcher, foggy nights. I wouldn't like to pay for all the paint it took to color it. Plain whiskey, I guess.' You can see what you are coming to if you don't look out. What's the matter with that baby back there? Is the woman lynching it, or is it lynching the woman? It's not, either. It's just like your high tenor, singing the soldier's farewell. Only better, more in tune. Yes, if they knew what we'd been saying about them, there'd be a riot. I wouldn't give much for your hair when the two old ladies behind got through with it. At this point... Unable to resist the temptation, Alex nudged Jack, drew a pencil from his pocket, and slyly tapped on the metal of the seat-arm the two letters of the telegraph laugh, high. The soldier opposite started, looked quickly over, caught the two boys' twinkling eyes, and coloring, laughed heartily. Promptly then he raised his thumb and wagged, "'You young rascals! I'll have you in the guardhouse for stealing military information. Who are you?' Alex replied, using his thumb as he had seen the soldier do, and the animated exchange of signals which followed continued until a whistle from the engine announced a stop, and the soldier wagged, "'We get off here. Good-bye.' "'Glad to have met you,' he said, smiling, as he and his companion passed them. "'Glad to have met you,' responded the boys heartily, "'and to have got on to the signalling. It may come in useful some day,' Alex added. Good day.' 
"'That's just what I was thinking myself, Al,' declared Jack. "'We must practice it.' Following the disappearance of the outgoing passengers, a group of newcomers appeared at the farther car door. "'Here comes someone I know,' Jack observed. "'The big man in front. Burke, a real estate agent.' The tall, heavy-featured man passed them and took the seat immediately behind. "'He didn't speak to you,' commented Alex. "'I'm glad he didn't. He's no friend. Just knew him, I meant,' responded Jack. "'He is a proper shark, they say. I know he practically did a widow out of a bit of property just back of ours.' "'And here is another, same business, from the next town. And not much better.' Jack went on, as a short, bustling, sharp-featured man appeared. The man behind them stood up and called, "'Hi there, Mitchell. Here!' The newcomer waved his hand, came forward quickly, and also dropped into the seat at the rear of the two boys. "'Nice pair of hawks,' said Jack. "'I'll bet they're hatching up something with a shady side to it. I'd be tempted to listen, if I could.' As the train was again under way, Jack had no opportunity of overhearing what was being said behind them. A few miles farther, however, they came once more to a stop, and almost immediately he pricked up his ears and nudged Alex. "'Don't believe the ignorant dolt knows the real value of butter and eggs,' it was the deep voice of the bigger man, Burke. "'He's one of those queer ducks without any friends. Lives there all by himself, doesn't read the papers.' only comes to town about once a month. No, there's not one chance in ten of his waking up and getting on to it. "'You always were a lucky dog,' declared the other. "'If you land it, you ought to clear fifty thousand inside of five years.' "'A hundred. I intend holding for a cold hundred thousand. There has been talk of the town building a steam plant already, but water is, of course, a way ahead of that and they are sure to swing to it, and this fall is the only one within ten miles of Haddowville. "'Didn't I tell you?' exclaimed Jack in a whisper. "'Doing somebody out of something, whatever it is.' "'You might build the plant yourself, and hold the town up for whatever you wished,' the second speaker went on. "'Yes, I could, but I prefer the ready cash. That has always been my plan of doing business.' No, I figure on disposing of the farm just as it stands, either to the town or a corporation, for an even hundred thousand. "'Does that give you a clue, Jack?' Alex asked. Jack shook his head. At the next remark, however, he sharply gripped Alex's arm. "'What fall has a stream there?' Forty feet, and the lake back of it's nearly a mile long and a half-mile wide.' The rumble of the train again drowned the voices of the two men, but Jack had heard enough. "'It's old Uncle Joe Potter, his farm,' he said with indignation. "'Now I understand. The old farmer apparently doesn't know its value as an electric power plant site, and Burke is trying to get hold of it for a song.' "'Let us put the old man on to him,' Alex immediately suggested. "'I'll talk the matter over with Father and see what he says.' said Jack. "'But here comes the good old town,' he broke off, with boyish enthusiasm. "'Look, there is the creek, and the old swimming-hole at the bend. I'll bet I've been in there a thousand times. 
And see that spire? That's our church. Our house is just beyond. Come on, let's be getting out. Catching up their suitcases, the boys passed down the aisle. As they halted at the door, they glanced back and saw that their neighbors of the next seat were following them. The two men were still talking, and coming to a stand behind the boys, the latter caught a further remark from Burke, apparently referring to the Potter Farm deal. "'Road asking him to town this evening,' he was saying. "'I'll give him a bit of good time to-night, and put him up at one of the hotels. And, unless something unexpected happens, I'll guarantee I'll have the thing put through by noon to-morrow.' "'I hope you do.' responded his companion. "'And I hope you don't,' exclaimed Jack beneath his breath. "'And I may do something more than hope.' Twenty minutes later, after a joyous welcome from his father and mother and sister Kate, and the cordial reception extended Alex, Jack was seated at his old corner of the vine-hidden veranda, recounting the conversation they had overheard between the two real estate men. Before Mr. Orr had ventured an opinion in the matter, however, the subject was temporarily thrust aside by the appearance of a party of Kate's girlfriends, evidently much disturbed over something. When on running forward Kate's voice was quickly added to the excited conversation, Jack followed to greet the girls, and learn the cause, and returned with the party to the veranda. "'Now what do you think of this?' he exclaimed with tragic horror. Professor Robison, the world-renowned mind-reader, though I never heard of him before, owing to his inability to arrive, will not be able to present at the girls' club song-fight to-night. Did you ever? But it's no laughing matter, said Kate, following the introduction of her friends to Alex. He was the feature of our program to-night, and I simply can't see what we're going to do. Many of the people will be coming just to hear him. "'Jack, couldn't you help us out?' asked one of the other girls, half seriously. "'You used to pretend you were a phrenologist and all that kind of thing at school, I remember.' "'No thanks, Mary. I've gotten over all that sort of foolishness,' Jack responded, expanding his chest and speaking in a deep voice. "'I leave that for you younger folks.' A small laughing riot followed this pompous declaration, and at its conclusion Jack carried Alex off to introduce him to his pigeons and chickens, and other former treasures of the backyard. Some minutes later Jack was dilating on the rich undercolour of his pet buff Orpington hen, when Alex, with an apology, abruptly broke in. "'Say, Jack, what kind of a crowd do they have at these girls' club affairs? Very swell?' "'Well, about every one in the church goes, and quite a few farmers usually come in from out of town. They are as swell as anything we have here, I guess. The Sunday school room is usually well filled. Why?' "'I was just wondering whether we couldn't help the girls out, and have a little fun out of it into the bargain. Remember the soldiers on the train? Now, why couldn't we—' And therewith Alex briefly sketched his plan. Jack promptly tossed the hen back into the coop. "'Great, Al! We will! It will be all kinds of a lark! I think there is just the stuff we'll need up in the garret. Come on, we'll break the joyful tidings to the girls.' "'I'd rather you played the part, though,' said Alex, as they returned toward the veranda. 
You, of course, know everyone. That will make no difference according to this plan. If I am in full view, too, that will add to the mystery, and help keep up the fun. The folks will be breaking their heads to learn who it is on the platform. No, it's settled. You are the distinguished professor, and Freno... what do you call it? The girls on the veranda were still in dejected debate as the boys reappeared. "'Ladies, we've got this thing fixed for you,' announced Jack. "'We have just wirelessed and engaged that world-famous thought-stealer, bumpologist and general seer, Professor Mohammed Click, of Constantinople, to plug up that hole in your program tonight. He stated that it would give him great pleasure to come to the assistance of such charming young women, etc., and that he could be counted upon.' "'You two mean things!' exclaimed Kate. "'We saw you with your heads together out there, laughing. This is no joking matter at all.' "'We are serious,' Jack protested. "'Positively. You go ahead and announce that owing to an attack of croup or any other reason, Professor Robison will not be able to appear, but that Professor Click has kindly consented to substitute, and we will look after the rest.' "'Do you really mean it?' cried the girls. "'On our word as full-grown gentlemen,' responded Jack. "'But we're not going to explain. Come on, Alex, until we have further debate with the distinguished Turk up in the garret. He probably has arrived by this time.' Whatever doubts Kate had as to the seriousness of the boys' intentions, they had not only been dissipated by noon, but had given place to lively curiosity and expectation. Alex and Jack had devoted the entire morning to their mysterious preparations, had made numerous trips to the church schoolroom, to the stores, had borrowed needles, thread, mucilage, had turned the library shelves upside down in a search for certain books, and once, coming on them unawares, she had surprised them practicing strange incantations with their fingers. It was late in the afternoon that the serious, and what was to prove the most important, feature of the evening's performance developed. On a return trip to the dry-goods store, Jack drew Alex to a halt with an exclamation, and pointed across the street. Burke, the real estate man, was walking slowly along with a shriveled-up little old gentleman in dilapidated hat, faded garments, and top boots. "'The victim,' said Jack, with deep disgust. "'Old Uncle Joe Potter!' Look at him sporting along with a cigar in his mouth, one of Burke's cigars. The boys paralleled the oddly assorted pair some distance, and it could readily be seen that Burke was doing his best to win the old man's confidence, and that the latter already was much impressed with the attention and deference shown him by the well-dressed agent. "'If we could get the old man alone,' said Alex. "'Not much chance, I am afraid.' Now that he has him in hand, Burke probably won't lose sight of him until he has closed his bargain. Remember what he said just before we left the train, about giving the old chap a good time tonight and putting him up at one of the hotels? Alex halted. Give him a good time? Say, Jack, why shouldn't we give him a good time at the girls' club entertainment tonight? And then why shouldn't we— Jack uttered a shout and struck Alex enthusiastically on the back. "'Al, you've hit it! You've hit it! Bully! Here, give me those complimentary tickets Kate gave us, 
and I'll go right after them, before they make any other arrangements. You wait. Jack was running across the street in a moment, and drawing up alongside the two men, he addressed them both. "'Excuse me, Mr. Potter, Mr. Burke, but wouldn't you like to take in our girls' club entertainment tonight? It's going to be really quite good, good music and fun, and a bit of a tea-social in between.' "'I'm sure you would enjoy it,' he declared, addressing himself to the older man. "'One of the features of the program is a chap who claims he can read people's thoughts.' Of course, nobody thinks he can, but he will make lots of fun. The old man smiled and looked at his companion. "'It's up to you, Mr. Potter,' responded Burke genially. "'If you think you would enjoy it, why, I would. Your taste is good enough recommendation for me.' "'Then let us go,' said the old gentleman, putting his hand into his pocket. "'No, this is my treat,' interposed Burke, grasping the tickets. Here you are, lad, and keep the change. Thank you, sir, said Jack, and with difficulty restraining a shout, he dashed back toward Alex, waving his hat above his head as a token of victory. The scene of the girls' club entertainment, the church schoolroom, was filled to the doors when the program began that evening. I'm going to be anxious about Mr. Burke and the old man, though, observed Jack, who with Alex had been standing near the entrance, and remarking on the good attendance. A moment after the door again opened, and Jack started forward with an expression of relief. They had come. "'Good evening, Mr. Potter, Mr. Burke,' he said. "'Shall I find you a seat?' "'Yes, and a good one now,' requested the real estate man. "'I've saved two well to the front,' responded Jack. "'This way, please.' "'Now, Alex,' he said, returning, it's up to us. The mind-reading number on the program was at length reached. The chairman arose. "'I am very sorry to say, ladies and gentlemen,' he announced, "'that Professor Robison, who is next on the program, was unexpectedly not able to keep his engagement. However, in his place we have secured the services of Professor Mahmoud Click of Constantinople, astrologer, phrenologist, mind-reader, and general all-round seer, and I'm sure you'll find him no less instructive and entertaining." Despite this assurance, in the silence which followed there was a distinct note of disappointment, even displeasure, for it was obvious that the flowery title of the substitute concealed some local amateur. End of Part 1 of Chapter 13「Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.